Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Samuel Bodnet. He's a doctoral candidate in the History of Christianity program at the University of Chicago, and is currently writing a dissertation examining philosophical and Christian theology in the German-Dominican school. Sam, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So today you're here to speak to us about Albert the Great. Yeah, that's right. Uh, someone who I think maybe once upon a time wouldn't have been conceptualized within this formation that we call the mystical, but I, I think increasingly has the right to that name if we use the word mystic in a very specific sense, or if we attend to his writings in, in a very careful and specific way. And I'm very excited about enforcing that right. <laughs> but before we get to him, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself working in the academic world of mysticism? Right. So I, I began you know, my academic journey as an undergraduate in Australia back in, uh, in Monash University in the city of Melbourne, where I spent most of my life. And I, I entered the university to do you know, an arts degree. And I, I thought I would do archaeology. And I was interested in ancient history and, and in mythology. I learned very quickly that archaeology was not ancient history or mythology, but you know, the science of extrapolating facts about past societies based on potsherds. But I was taking electives in medieval studies and in, uh, in philosophy, which was my minor, and particularly religious philosophy or the philosophy of religion, you know, questions about like, does God exist? Do we need religion to be properly ethical, et cetera, et cetera. And that led me to take as electives a class on the Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides and the Kabbalah. And I also took a class on basically just the history of Islam, where a significant portion of that class was dedicated to the history of Islamic philosophy and the uh, history of Sufism, Islamic mysticism, or Islamic piety, pious practices. And for both of my papers that I wrote for those classes, I ended up writing comparative works between the Jewish literature that I was reading for the class and the Islamic literature that I was reading for the class and some Christian figure. And I ended up writing two essays on uh, Meister Eckhart and his relationship to Maimonides and Meister Eckhart and his relationship or comparison to Ibn Arabi and his concept of Gnosticism or Irfan and annihilation. And I found these really cool. Both of these figures led me to Eckhart and I became very interested in Meister Eckhart's thought. And then I pursued postgraduate training. Uh, I did an honors where I, I sort of expanded and worked on that, that essay on sort of Eckhart's reading of Maimonides. Uh, and then I did a master's where I looked at what I called the rhetoric of inexpressibility and the practice of silence in uh, the German Dominican school, looking at the ways that German Dominican theologians like Albert the Great, Meister Eckhart, and some of his disciples, and also Thomas Aquinas, read both the Pseudo-Dionysius, you know, the foundational text for Christian mysticism, and Moses Maimonides in order to come up with their own sort of understanding of apophaticism, right? the theological discourse of negating divine attributes in order to unite conceptually and you know, even sort of personally with the divine. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, and then I decided I was going to write a PhD dissertation about further exploring that which is what I'm doing now, looking at the ways that the German Dominican school and Albert the Great as sort of the founding figure for that school establish the relationship between philosophy and theology and how that relates to scholastic retrievals in the 13th century of Aristotle and Plato and how Arabic thought and Jewish thought mediates their understanding of contemplation, union with the divine, what it means to be a theologian or what it means to be a philosopher 
and whether one can be a Christian and a philosopher, whether the philosophers have their own religion. So that's my my journey. And uh, I think that there was something about Albert's very extensive corpus of writings that I just found myself lost in. And the way that he was able to draw on all of these intellectual currents that were newly available to Christians in, in the 13th century and produce something systematic that would ground further Christian scholastic syntheses. Just I found that was just really interesting. So that's quite an interesting journey from a topic that wasn't ancient history into one that, you know, isn't as ancient as people sometimes think we are. <laughs> but you found yourself in philosophy and religion but also mysticism. So where does mysticism fall with regards to philosophy, history, theology? What is its place in that group? I guess, I mean, one of the foundational things that I discovered about Maimonides, right, this just Jewish philosopher who is, who is a philosopher in the sort of the Aristotelian tradition, very important for the, the sort of self-conscious construction in the Middle Ages and beyond of a Jewish philosophical tradition, was that he was also what we would call a mystic, right? If we understand a mystic following you know, the work of Bernard McGinn, one of my professors at the University of Chicago, as someone who writes about the consciousness of the presence of God. And certainly that's something that is very present in all of the texts that I study. And that Albert the Great, what I find so interesting about him is that he constitutes a philosophical mysticism. He sort of extracts or abstracts out of the Aristotelian corpus and the Arabic writings and, and the Jewish writings that he's reading, an understanding of the way that the philosopher can mystically unite with God. And then he juxtaposes that with a Christian mystical union with God that is a further perfection. So he's sort of like, you know, uh, the philosopher can unite with God intellectually. It's a contemplative, a speculative activity or exercise right? One's mind can unite with the divine mind. And then Christian theology and Christian revelation enables an even further or an even more perfect union with God, one that takes place through love, that is mediated through sort of grace, that sort of results in the resurrection, right? And the beatific vision, the true, uh, as a Christian would say, of course, the true enjoyment of God, that the sort of the philosophical enjoyment of God is really just sort of an image of that, a reflection of that. So it's not quite it is a perfection, but it's not the fullest perfection that is possible for the human. And getting really interested in the way that Albert sees sort of philosophy and, and theology in productive tension, as opposed to trying to assimilate them into sort of one thing, right? He's not writing a Christian philosophy, which I think many people attribute to his student, Thomas Aquinas. They say, well, he synthesizes revelation and reason. Albert wants to insist on their autonomy. And he does so by granting that the philosopher can have their own type of mystical experience or their own experience of union with God or their own consciousness of God, but that the Christian one that is enabled by grace or the light of grace and revealed truth is more perfect, more total, you know, more salvific. The philosophical union with God is not a salvific union because it doesn't, you know, there's no resurrection. There's no direct vision of God that is only available to the Christian. So this is him working in the Augustinian heritage. So if you're a philosopher, you don't get to have actual union. He would argue that the philosopher, their intellect unites with the divine intellect, 
and is eventually after death even assimilated into it, but their individuality doesn't continue and they won't be resurrected and reinstantiated, or at least they won't be reinstantiated in paradise necessarily. And this is also a limited sort of grasping of God as he is, if one wants to speak scholastically, as he is determined by being. So the philosopher unites with the divine intellect and is able to participate and recognize the divine being or the divine existence. What the philosopher cannot know and cannot see is the Trinity and cannot enter into the Trinity through Christ and through the sacraments and through the church which enables sort of a more total experience of God. So the Christian will transcend just the union with the divine being or the divine understanding and will participate in the inner life of the Trinity and will experience it in the beatific vision. And Albert's two terms for this in some of his writing, at least, um, in his De Intellectu, which is one of his philosophical treatises, he'll talk about union or conjunction between the intellect and the divine intellect that is enabled that the philosopher can experience. And then he talks about adherence or inherence in love, which is the beatitude of the Christian, which is an interpenetration and a mutual participation and partaking of the dynamic movement within Trinity that the philosopher cannot even know about because it radically escapes their capacity or their, their intellectual conceptualization. Yeah, and I think that one of the democratizing moves here for Albert is that he also means that the Christian doesn't need to be a philosopher to unite with God because the mechanisms that enable the Christian to unite to God, which is still an intellectual union ultimately for him, their participation in the liturgical life of the church, their reception of the sacraments, their accrual of merit, which all ground their capacity to contemplate. I mean, he is a, he is a member of the Dominican order. So he, you know, he belongs to a religious order that is a contemplative order. So he is certainly thinking in those terms. But, you know, your average Christian doesn't need to go through the philosophical curriculum and, you know, learn the deepest insights of metaphysics in order to achieve loving union with God. It's enough for them to partake of, you know, the sacrament of Eucharist, to participate in the life of the church, to sing the liturgy. And Albert has lengthy commentaries on the Eucharist, on the sacraments, on the mass that sort of spell this out in detail, that the Christian can be a philosopher and unite with God in this way, as he is mediated through salvific grace. But the philosopher cannot participate in this ultimate Christian sort of beatific experience of the divine without being a part of the church, without partaking in sacrament. So there's some limit or some sort of boundary that philosophy hits in its journey towards God that only Christians can sort of penetrate through. And only because God helps them by revealing himself in Christ and instituting the church as that which provides grace. Well, I immediately like anyone who tells you that I don't have to understand metaphysics. So he's in my good books already. <laughs> but let's get into his background a little bit more. What do we know about Albert the Great, other than that he was great? So we, we know surprisingly a lot about Albert, given how often we don't really know much about the sort of the philosophers and theologians of the Middle Ages. And this is partly because the Dominican order are very good about composing hagiographies about their members. That said, a lot of the information we have about Albert comes from the 15th century, when a set of Dominican Dominicans at 
the studium in Cologne basically wrote a bunch of lives about him in an attempt to have him canonized as a saint. It didn't happen, actually, at least not then. So we, we know a lot, but our sources for Albert's life are late, you know, almost written you know, 200, 300 years after he lived. So Albert, born around the beginning of the 13th century, the 1200s, in uh, Lauingen in Swabia, in Germany. He was a, the son of a knightly family. Eventually, he was recruited into the Dominican order in the, in the 1220s as a student, probably in Bologna, by John of Saxony II, Master General of the Dominican order. And then he spent some time in Cologne studying and then eventually teaching in the 1230s before he was sent to the University of Paris in, in 1240 to study the sentences of Peter Lombard, complete a degree in theology, and sit as Master of Theology in the Dominican chair there and teach in, in Paris. Then in 1248, Humbert of Romance, the master general of the order, tapped Albert on the shoulder and said, I want to establish a proper school of studies for the Dominicans in Cologne. So I'd like you to go to Cologne, you know, your home base, and set up that school of studies and be their first teacher. So he did. He took some of his students along with him, include Thomas Aquinas, his disciple Ulrich of Strasbourg, and Thomas of Cantenbrake, who I think is very well known to uh, students of mysticism because he wrote all of these lives about the women of the Low Countries. So he was also uh, one of Albert's uh, students in Cologne. While in Cologne, Albert does this radical thing where he decides that he will lecture on the entirety of the Pseudo-Dionysian corpus and the newly available in Latin translation ethics of Aristotle as his sort of like foundational pedagogical act. So this shows us that right from this sort of moment, Albert is conceptualizing the discipline of theology as attending to this corpus of Dionysian works and paying attention to the Aristotelian texts, which is at this time, generally a theological education was about reading this book called The Sentences by Peter Lombard. And Albert, for whatever reason, decides that's not how he's going to teach. So after these lectures, and we have copies of them in the writing of Thomas Aquinas, who was taking his lecture notes, that's how they survive. You know, they're considered relics now, and they're very messy. Thomas's handwriting is atrocious. So after this, he begins a project to gloss and paraphrase the entire Aristotelian corpus. So if Aristotle wrote a text, like the physics, the metaphysics, Albert rewrote it and added a very extensive commentary. So this is why Albert's corpus of writings is huge. He essentially rewrote the Aristotelian corpus for the Dominican order to understand it. And he says he did it because his students were clamoring for him, like, oh, explain Aristotle to us. We don't understand. He was like, I'm going to do this for you. And typical humility topos. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm not the best person to do this, but I, I will do it for you. In 1259, he's then again called by the Master General of the Order to go to the general chapter of the Dominican Order, the Council of Valenciennes, again with Thomas Aquinas and some other people. And he is tasked with leading a commission to establish an official program of studies for the order that would be rolled out in all of the Dominican studia across Europe. So he's deeply involved in the creation of the pedagogical program of the Dominican order and very committed to making sure that Aristotle plays a big role in Dominican training, even though up until that point, the Dominican order were very sort of averse or suspicious of the Aristotelian corpus. He's then, in 1260, made the Bishop of Regensburg. He hated it. And in, eventually in 1263, he'd successfully petitioned the Pope to, uh, to give up that duty so he could go into seclusion. And uh, he 
ended up in the, the Dominican convent of Wurzburg with his brother, and he just wrote philosophy for a while. And uh, during this period of time, he earned the nickname Boots the Bishop, because he would walk everywhere from diocese to diocese doing his visitations, because the Dominican order, except in extreme circumstances, in, like legislated that no bishop was allowed to ride. They had to walk in imitation of the apostles. So Albert walked all over Germany from convent to convent to convent, solving problems and getting involved in sort of legislative disputes. Uh, he was famously called in actually in 1258, immediately before he was made bishop of Regensburg to uh, settle a dispute between the Archbishop of Cologne and the town council who were like at loggerheads and Albert sort of sat them down as like, right, this is how it's all going to go. Yeah. And then Albert's life sort of takes a sad end. Eventually in the 1270s, he's back in Cologne and he dies in 1280. And according to the hagiographical literature, he'd basically gone senile. And there's this tale about his secretary, a guy called Gottfried from Duisburg, once knocked on the door to his cell and said, Albert, are you in here? And Albert uh, responded, Albert's not here today. So by all accounts, much like sort of Thomas Aquinas also had his breakdown or his mental or his mystical experience at the end of his career, where he declared everything I've written is straw. Albert also sort of at the end of his career, we have to remember these guys wrote a lot, seems to have experienced some sort of mental collapse. So that's what we know about Albert. What a way to live. Just, I'm a bishop, I'm going to walk around, see things, solve problems, but I don't really like this, so I'm just going to go away and write now. Yeah, is that all right? Okay, bye. And just, that's it. Yeah. And the other thing we know about this stage is that he had a traveling group of scholars who would go along with him and uh, assist him in his scientific experiments. Because, of course, like one of the parts of his sort of Aristotelian project is very committed to the sciences. And he wants to like know and understand the world. He writes bestiaries and he writes you know, treatises about the powers, the occult powers of minerals and, and plants. But yeah, he, had, he basically had a, a traveling uh, laboratory that would come around with him and they would bring him interesting things. He had a little pet dog that had a black eye and a white eye that he talks about in his books. And he also had a pet serpent that he like kept. And he uh, talks about how one time he had himself lowered over a waterfall because he wanted to like take a look at how the light played off the water. So even while he was like traveling around as a bishop doing his Episcopal duties, he was also still doing all of this scientific labor with this like coterie of, of scholars and students that he always had around with them. And it's important here to remember that because he was a from a noble family you know sort of he had the clout and the money to do this and even after he when he finished up his bishopric he successfully petitioned the order to say hey excuse me for my mendicant duties essentially so he continued to live in dominican convents but he never formally re-entered the order again well i mean that's not technically right because he never left the order but he never he was always excused from his dominican responsibilities because he, he was committed to the scientific endeavor his philosophical endeavor and he had the money to do it yeah i mean there's nothing that says i'm not hurting for resources like i have a traveling entourage of lab assistants and pets <laughs> that's exactly right it's one way to gain a reputation for sure. Yeah. And of course, as well, there were a lot of malicious stories that would circulate around Albert from his detractors. We ask, uh, was Albert a mystic or not? We can also ask one of the live debates right up until the 15th century in this initial canonization process is, is Albert a sorcerer? There was a popular conception that Master Albert was a magician. I mean, one popular tale that also gets attributed to Roger Bacon, basically Albert's Franciscan counterpart. 
is that he built a bronze automaton that could tell the future, a bronze head that eventually Thomas Aquinas apparently smashed in a rage because it was annoying him while he was trying to read. And another tale is that Albert summoned demons to kidnap the Queen of France and bring her to his garret where he could put her into a trance and they would make love and then he would send her back. So there's a lot of like, maybe the flip side of this is also this guy Ulrich of Strasbourg, who I mentioned, who is a, becomes a theologian in his own right, very important educator in the Dominican convent context. In his masterwork called uh, On the Good, On the Highest Good, De Summa Bono, he refers to my teacher, Albert the Great, who was the wonder of his age and a skilled magician. So even amongst his disciples, Albert sort of has this reputation for occult power, right? And this is because Albert, and we talked a little bit, you know, about the mystical experience that the philosopher can attain. Albert understands the good philosopher or the competent scientist to be the person who can wonder work, basically. They can work miracles because they understand how nature works. He uh, has a, an understanding of the doctrine of fascination or the evil eye, where one, through the force of one's own will, exert sort of power out of one's eyes and get people to do what they wanted. And Albert adopts from the Arabic philosopher Avicenna, this concept of what he calls the sanctified or holy soul that the philosopher is understood to possess. And he says that what happens is that the philosopher who knows everything, right, who has actualized all knowledge and who is assimilated to the divine understanding, he says they become a world soul. And like the world souls that move the spheres and basically operate nature or direct nature, the philosopher can do that too. So the philosopher can intervene into the order of nature. Now, he's not necessarily saying that they can like disrupt the order of nature, but he is saying that they understand how nature works so well that they can activate its hidden properties. So the scientist knows that sapphire, for instance, is a gemstone that can cure poison. So the scientist is the one who can work the miracle of curing poison because they know how to use a stone. So this is sort of how he understands the mystic, the, the philosophical mystic. They are a wonder worker, someone who also can tell the future, a prognosticate and read the stars. And thus they're comparable to the Christian saint and the prophet who can do all of this at a higher level because God's power that works through them can actually transcend nature rather than sort of just like operate it most efficiently. Okay, my next question was going to be, how was Albert the Great mystical? But I feel like we've already covered that now. <laughs> yes, I mean, if he was a mystic, it's because he was such a good scientist that people thought he was a sorcerer. But, I mean, to also do Albert due diligence as a Christian theologian, you know, he writes these extensive commentaries on the Mass, on sort of the experience of the love of God that accompanies the Eucharist. He also teaches how the Christian ideally should participate in this higher register, which is the Christian register. So if he is in the business of training magicians, he's also in the business of training saints. And the saint can be a magician, but the magician doesn't necessarily get to be a saint if they're not a Christian. Yeah, I mean, get you a holy person who can do both. <laughs> That's right. Okay, and so you've mentioned a couple of times that he has this exceptionally large corpus of work. What kind of things did he write about? What kind of texts do we have? What does this encompass? So he rewrote the entire Aristotelian corpus. So if you've ever encountered you know, Aristotle's writings, you know, the Nicomachean ethics, the physics, the metaphysics, on the generation and corruption of the world, on animals, on minerals, 
on causation. If there's a book by Aristotle, there's a book with the same title that Albert wrote. So that's what we have. We have this entire re-systematization of the Aristotelian corpus. But as he understood it, so there are some pseudo-Aristotelian works that make its way into his own Aristotelian work. I think the most important example there is this book called The Book of Causes, which was an Arabic neoplatonic treatise about the flow of causation from the one through the intellect, through the soul, into matter, and how the universe comes to be as it emanates from God and thus also can return to him. And Albert thinks that this is written by Aristotle when it is actually a set of propositions taken from the Neoplatonic philosopher Proclus and with some Plotinus thrown in. So it's not Aristotelian at all. He has three systematic theological summae, one called the Summa de Creaturis, with an important text called De Homine, or On the Human, embedded in that. He has his Sentences Commentary, which is his own commentary on Lombard sentences, which he produced in Paris. And I'm not counting some of his occasional theological writings. And then he has, at the end of his life, began writing a Summa Theologia, which he calls the Sum of Theology or the Miraculous Science of God. And this work is produced during this period of time when he's in his dotage, right? Apparently in his dotage. He produced it with the assistance of this guy, Gottfried von Duisburg and other scholars who were sort of surrounding him in Cologne. And it's in two books. The first book, probably authentic. The second book, very likely, is inauthentic. And it's really just basically, it's a calc of all of his prior writings, or his prior theological writings, with some additions based on the Aristotelian works. And then he has the commentaries on the Pseudo-Dionysian corpus that he also wrote, which are basically records of his lectures. And then he has the devotional writings. Um, and then, of course, there's also all of these pseudonymous works that accrue to him. Works about alchemy, On the Secrets of Women, I think, is a famous one that was attributed to him, but was probably just produced by his workshop, which is about, I mean, it's this shockingly anti-feminist, misogynistic text about how birth happens and how monsters and disabled people come into the world. And, and then there's, there's a text that becomes very important in the German school system called The Poor Man's Philosophy that was written by a guy called Albert of Saxony, actually, but gets attributed to Albert the Great and passes under his authority. And it's basically, it's just a simplified Aristotelian corpus that is useful for, it's like, you know, how we have our textbooks that we, you know, use in science class at the university. You're taking physics for the first year and you're going to read a textbook. You're not going to read like actual science. It's the equivalent. And also, if you're a poor student, you can't afford to buy every single work by Aristotle and all of the commentaries by Aristotle. You can buy this textbook. So this also becomes sort of important for the Albertian corpus, even though he never actually wrote it. So how many things do you think were attributed to him that were not his at all? He seems like the kind of person who, you know, we don't know who wrote this. Let's say it was Albert the Great. Oh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, he's much like Bonaventure in that respect. Bonaventure, Albert, Bernard of Clairvaux, and Thomas Aquinas, I think, uh, are some of the like biggest culprits in the Middle Ages for people who have works attributed to them that were never actually by them, and that we only really worked out weren't by them in the last hundred years or so because of developments in text critical sort of methods and such. Yeah, and you know, the critical editions of the Albertian corpus are still being produced. They began making them in the last century, and they've got a long way to go. So there's a lot of Albert's texts that haven't been edited yet. They exist in pre-critical modern editions. 
And then a lot of it hasn't been translated either, or at least into English. A lot of it translated into German, but not so much into English. It's been a marked preference as well until very recently to translate and study Albert's scientific and philosophical writings and sort of ignore the theological writings. That's thankfully changed since the 80s. Translation of his commentary on the mystical theology by Dionysius was produced for the Classics and Western Spirituality series, which I think was really important. And just in the last couple of years, some of his commentaries on the sacraments, on the Mass and on the Eucharist are are being produced in the English translation, and his scriptural commentaries also coming out, because he also commented on a lot of the Bible, all of the Gospels, several of the Prophets. Job, a favorite book of his. And interestingly, the minor prophets. He's very fond of the minor prophets. So yeah, he's written a lot. (laughs) And I work on Albert, and I don't even pretend to have read everything. Okay, so of what you have read, is there one text or one particular theme in his work that you find the most intriguing? I really, really like his commentary on metaphysics, his commentary on the Liber de Causis, his treatise on the intellect and the intelligible, and his work on the Dionysian texts. I think that all of those are the ones that intrigue me the most. He has as well a letter that he wrote, actually, one of his compatriots called uh, On the Fifteen Problems, which was produced in the 1270s during this period of time when Aristotle was being censored at the University of Paris. So this is his response to that censorship. Uh, One of his, his colleagues in the Dominican order sent him you know, 15 propositions that had been condemned, and they were like, what's up with these? Can you explain them? Are they a problem? And Albert goes through them and basically argues that they've been condemned because the people who are condemning them don't understand philosophy. (laughs) And it's a very grouchy text. It's very short. Like, you can tell that this is something that is produced, you know, towards the end of his life and his, like, feeling frustrated with his order for (laughs) not understanding philosophy well enough. And this is a common complaint of his, that the Latins and members in the Dominican order and at the University of Paris just don't understand philosophy adequately and are too quick to critique it because they don't understand it rather than try to understand it on its own terms and then recover what is true about it and then sort of approach that from a theological perspective. So he also routinely critiques his colleagues in the magisterium for what he calls theologizing philosophy. So attempting to engage uh, what he calls the negotium philosophiae, the business of philosophy, by introducing theological principles, which may be true principles, right? That he would concede are true as as a sort of theologian, but which cannot be proved demonstrably and thus have no business making their way into philosophy. And his classic example of this is he's very critical of those like Thomas Aquinas' student who understand the separate intellects that move the spheres according to the peripatetic system to be the angels of scripture. And he says, no, they're not. The angels don't look anything like the separate intellects. So if we accept that the separate intellects exist, and he only ever says that it seems likely that they do based on philosophical demonstration, then they can't be the angels because the angels move in different ways. They have wills, which the intellects, he thinks, don't have wills. Also, the angels are responsible for conveying divine theophanies and divine messages and communicating God's sort of revelation to the community, where the separate intellects are just responsible for mediating the divine understanding down into creation and enabling 
humanity to know things. So here we also see the the split again between nature and, and faith or nature and grace, right? And these two causal orders that are mediating the divine influence, according to Albert, which is why philosophy and theology are separate, if sort of relatable. So it seems like most of his written work focuses on explaining these philosophical concepts to the Dominicans, because as you pointed out, they didn't understand them as well as they should have. But were there other things that he wrote that were more about communicating his own ideas rather than clarifying the works of those who'd come before him? Yeah, I mean, of course, the way that knowledge was produced in the 13th century and in the Middle Ages is that knowledge was always, always the supplementation of authority and the re-articulation of sort of what was previously already laid out. I think up until very recently, we thought that he had composed some prayers to Mary, but I gather for about the 1970s, the authenticity of those texts have been called into doubt. Certainly most of Albert's work is commentatorial or paraphrastic. His systematic theological works probably are more original in the sense of creative insofar as that he is posing questions and answering them. So they are an attempt to construct a theological system by using sources. And it's, of course, also characteristic of Albert that if the philosopher is not allowed to theologize, the theologian can philosophize. So there's a lot of philosophy, a lot of Albert's own philosophy is present in the theological writing. And the treatise I mentioned, De Intellectu, on the intelligence and the intelligible, is a unique philosophical work by Albert. So there is no Aristotelian text, De Intellectu. Albert writes one because he sees a, a gap in the Aristotelian corpus that needs to be filled. So that is probably his most important original philosophical work. And it just so happens to be the one that's all about how the philosopher can unite with God and become a wonder worker and become a prophet and all of the stuff that enables a philosophical mysticism that is not quite Christian mysticism, but like it. How incredibly convenient. <laughs> that's right. And it's also interesting that Albert's disciples uh, in the Dominican order and also in the arts faculty will then go on to write their own day intellectus, right? That are clearly modeled on his. Unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of the podcast, which means I need to ask you the one final question, which is, why is Albert the Great your favorite mystic? I sometimes wonder about whether mystic is a useful category, because it can mean so many different things. I'm much more of a proponent of thinking about things that are mystical, mystical as an adjective that sort of you know, qualifies a type of theology or a type of discourse or a type of philosophy. In that respect, I find Albert interesting because he is constructing a mystical philosophy and a mystical theology and understands them to be in some form of relationship. So that that's interesting to me. Uh, how can one not love the medieval philosopher who was also a sorcerer? Uh, <laughs> That's, I think, another reason why I find him so interesting. And because Albert also announces so many of the subsequent projects that will be elaborated within Christian scholasticism, he sets the terms for Thomism, which is developed in line with but different from Albert's philosophy. He enables the radical Aristotelians, those sort of heterodox Averroists who get censored in the 13th century for uh, arguing that there is a, such a thing as philosophical perfection that is autonomous from Christian theology. 
Albert's the person who first formulates that argument. And he's so interesting to me because his conception of Aristotle and his understanding of, of philosophy is so informed by the mystical currents that he's getting from the Arabic Aristotelians who are also conceptualizing sort of philosophy as this sort of divinizing endeavor. Albert also loves the Hermetic literature that is also available to him. Those texts attributed to Hermes Trismegistus or the thrice great Hermes, right? That also sort of meditate on the way that the philosopher can become a god in the world or like a god in the world. That's probably the more accurate way to say it. And I find that really interesting. <laughs> I think another thing is that one, one is able to decouple mysticism from Christianity by sort of thinking about the way that the philosopher can be a mystic as well. Of course, he also gets us to Eckhart. Oh, Eckhart. Yet another wonderful mystic who I may have to drag you back on at some point in the future to talk about. <laughs> But for today, at least, Sam, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Albert the Great. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And thank you all so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Lydia Walker about Marie Dony. Mm-hmm.